Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Alfie Bowen about his new book, Enjoying Candy Crush and Capitalism, which is published by Zero Books. Okay, so welcome to Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Alfie Bowen, who uh, has a variety of jobs. Actually, he's editor of Everyday Analysis. Welcome to Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Alfie Bowen about his new book, Enjoying it, Candy Crush and Capitalism, which is published by Zero Books. Okay, so welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Alfie Bone, who uh, has a variety of jobs. Actually, he's editor of Everyday Analysis. He's an assistant professor of literature over in Hong Kong, and um, he also is the founding editor of the Hong Kong Review of Books. And we're going to be talking about his new book, which is called Enjoying It, Candy Crush and Capitalism, uh, which is published by Zero Books. So welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Um, th- this is a, a really fun book, uh, which is in keeping with the kind of theme um, that the book is is seeking um, to explore. Um, and I suppose a good place to start would be if you could say a bit about where the book has come from and how it relates to um, the kind of broader things you've been doing with your academic career. Right. Okay, sure. So, so my academic career has kind of been uh, about uh, laughter studies, you know, the study of laughter. Uh, and laughter is this kind of a strange thing uh, where, uh, which has taken me decades to have anything to say about it. Um, and uh, yeah, I sort of seeped in philosophy and, and in the history of theorising laughter from Aristotle, Hobbes, Freud and, and so forth. Uh, so this this came out of it was related to laughter, you know, enjoyment and laughter. I think can be compared, but really, I, I just started to find myself very distracted um, from my uh, turning my PhD into a book, working endlessly on the philosophy of laughter, and I was distracted by a lot of strange things that I had never enjoyed before, such as Candy Crush, uh, and other kinds of mobile phone games other kinds of internet distractions. Uh, and in the end, I'd spent so many hours distracted, I felt I had to turn it into something. So th- this book is a kind of a sh- very short book uh, discussing you know, the, the politics of distraction in, in today's society and, the, and also how, how that operated on me. Yeah, it's really interesting that, that there's this kind of wonderful tension running through it about, um, you know, whether distraction is a kind of a, almost a good or a, or a bad thing. And you, you situate that uh, around both the idea of enjoyment, but also um, the idea of um, dangerousness or um, a kind of challenging uh, element uh, of, of enjoyment and, and distraction. So I wonder if you could talk through that opening of the book about how existing ways of discussing enjoyment might be, uh, as you describe, insufficient and politically dangerous. Right, right. Yeah, sure. So, so what my kind of contention is, is that enjoyment um, 
plays, you know, as you say, a politically dangerous role. And I think this comes from my, my kind of belief that we experience enjoyment as if it's natural, as if what we enjoy is nat- comes naturally to us. And, and that is even despite the fact that we know very well um, that enjoyment is not, that what we enjoy is not natural. You know, when we talk about it in a conversation, in a, whether that be in the pub or uh, in the university, I think we generally tend to say, no, of course, what we enjoy is uh, dependent on our upbringing, our class, our gender, uh, all sorts of other social and cultural things. Um, and yet I felt, despite our acknowledging that, uh, you know, we do actually experience enjoyment itself as if it's natural. Uh, so it's this kind of strange disavowal. Like we know that what we enjoy is totally dictated by culture, but somehow we feel when we enjoy things that there's something truly us uh, about that enjoyment. And, and therefore I could see it kind of, I could, my idea was the enjoyment somehow manages, even though we know what it's doing, to kind of uh, control us and construct us. And uh, so, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, one of the other things you're, you're doing in the introduction is, is setting up um, a juxtaposition around um, certain forms of enjoyment being labelled productive and other forms being labelled unproductive. And I think that extends um, some of the ideas you've been talking about there. Right, yeah. I mean, there's two, there's two sort of reasons why it's politically dangerous, in my opinion. First, as I said before, uh, enjoyment seems natural. Uh, and why is that politically dangerous? I, I didn't answer correctly in your first question, really. Is, is that if we think our enjoyment is politically is natural, then we must, uh, then we can't do anything about it. Uh, and, you know, for example, I, I finished up with a discussion of um, uh, a documentary by Louis Theroux, uh, where he, he goes to many, many prisons in the US and discusses their crimes with all the inmates. And almost all of them said that they had a natural enjoyment of criminal acts. So, you know, I, I enjoy something which society prohibits. Therefore, I acted on my enjoyment and was punished. So seeing enjoyment as a natural thing uh, is part of a culture which says, well, I, I, should, I should pursue my impulses and pursue the things I enjoy. And I think that can lead to kind of destructive acts. Um, so, you know, and also I'm not sort of having a go at criminals. I think it's the opposite that, you know, a culture <laughs> which treats enjoyment as natural can hardly complain when people act on their enjoyments uh, and harm others in the process of doing so. So in order to, you know, we would need a kind of reforming of, of the entire approach to enjoyment in order to kind of solve those kind of uh, issues. Um, the second reason why enjoyment is politically dangerous is an easier question to answer, which is, and relates to your second question, you know, certain enjoyments are considered productive and some are considered unproductive. And I think that this is, um, well, I can answer that very straightforwardly, this is a kind of value judgment, not unlike, I compare it in the book to, um, you know, say, Levis. Uh, and his ideas of F.R. Lewis and his ideas of um, uh, some some literature is valuable and worthwhile, and other literature is mindless and useless. Uh, I think that you know this is just a value judgment, which is something you know academic study of literature is very familiar with as a concept. With enjoyment, it, it happens kind of unconsciously, right? When we, when we feel we're being unproductive, when we feel we're being productive, um, these kind of unconscious value judgments being placed on our enjoyment. As a, as a left-wing kind of, uh, someone trying to be a kind of left-wing radical, whatever that means, uh, you know, I encounter people all the time who think that the enjoyment of Taylor Swift, for instance, is unproductive, whereas the enjoyment of, uh, say, burial is productive and more interesting, or, or the enjoyment of 
Derrida or Lacan is more useful and productive than the enjoyment of Game of Thrones, for example. And I think there's a, there's a lot of kind of class politics going on in those judgments, which needs to be kind of unpicked. Yeah, and there's that grand tradition uh, since you know since Adorno and, and before actually of you know questioning the kinds of engagements and enjoyments that come from seemingly you know kind of unproductive or un- unworthy cultural forms. And and to pick up on the the point you just made that the thing you do in the first chapter is to kind of flip um, that position round and ask, well, actually, you know, maybe radical enjoyment isn't as radical and as transgressive and as challenging as we might think. Uh, and perhaps reading critical theory itself is, is actually a bit of a problem. Um, and you use examples of Deleuze and Guattari, who are, uh, you know, quite famous, quite important critical theorists, and also Jean-Francois Lyotard, uh, who again has a you know, kind of dominant position in, in some contemporary critical theory. So what's your, I suppose, challenge and, and critique of, of radical enjoyment? Mm. And how do the, yeah. the authors serve as examples? Great, great, great question. I think now I can get into kind of what I, what I really think and hope the book's been able to do. And this is something which I didn't um, articulate correctly in the book, you know. Uh, but the, 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 the best thing I've found so far is that my, the discussions of enjoyment I've had since the book uh, have really helped me to kind of articulate these arguments better. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to answer your question in a way that I... I wish I had done in the book, as it were. <laughs> um, and it's this, that enjoyment is, is not um, the object or the subject. You know, when we read a book, um, we are the subject reading, the book is the object read. You know, so when we read critical theory, um, we're, um, we're the reader and the text is the object. And Deleuze and Grassroot, Leotard would be examples of that. Um, enjoyment, I, I kind of try to get at, is a third thing. It's a kind of invisible connector between these two things. And in order to discuss uh, critical theory, um, I wish I had said this, that you, you need to discuss three things, not two. Not just you as the reader and the text as what's being read, but enjoyment as uh, something which operates between the two, a kind of connector. Uh, and that is true of, of reading Deleuze and of playing Candy Crush. You know, every piece of enjoyment is a kind of third part of this kind of triangular structure uh, between us and the things we consume and read and play and do. Um, and so to answer your question directly, um, it's entirely possible for the object being engaged with to be totally radical, i.e. Deleuze, totally anti-capitalist, uh, and for me to be myself, someone who considers myself, to, not, not me personally, but it's totally possible for, the, for me to be completely anti-capitalist, um, and for my the thing I'm enjoying to be completely anti-capitalist, but for the enjoyment itself, the third thing, the connector between the two, to be totally conformist and capitalist in its structure. Is that, is that a good answer? That is a great answer because it um, really kind of highlights the opposition um, that you set up in the subsequent chapter, um, which is at the core of the book, I think, um, that thinks through um, unproductive enjoyment forms of work and labour, um, using the example of Candy Crush Saga and, and football manager handheld. Yeah, um, absolutely. And this is, you know, this section, as you say, this is the section that people have, have found was decent. <laughs> Everyone that spoke to me, read the book, you know, thought that this was, this was the, the bit that was okay. <laughs> um, and I think what I argue here is something I can, uh, first I'll just um, 
you know, if I explain the argument of that chapter and then I'll try to apply what I just said, the kind of model to it. Um, so firstly, I, basically, I want to say that what seems like unproductive enjoyment, uh, it, which is uh, distraction, right, distractions. And like I said, this, this is a project that came out of my own distractions. Um, I like BuzzFeed and Twitter. I used to do and Candy Crush and Angry Birds and Football Manager Handheld and, and the, the specific... Uh, quality I was interested in was the handheldness and I was thinking about the relationship between these things and work because we have, we, we do these things at work you know ask people when they play uh, Candy Crush and it's always at work uh, the same is true of the most popular time to tweet is in the middle of the working day the most popular time to post is true in work so these are distractions which happen to us mainly in work and they're considered totally unproductive right so uh, you know doing Candy Crush under the table is the opposite of what your boss would like you to do. Yeah, it really, your boss would like you to be inputting data into an Excel spreadsheet. Instead, you're playing cookie clicker in a hidden tab. Uh, and so it seems like the absolute opposite of productive capitalist work. Uh, what I wanted to uh, offer was a completely different way of say, seeing that, really. And, and via this kind of guilt function, um, I, I um, wanted to argue that uh, these kind of temporary moments of unproductivity uh, really serve the capitalist uh, work agenda by turning you slightly guilty and forcing you to kind of return to work and overcompensate with uh, extra desire to produce um, in order to kind of overcompensate for your un- unproductive behaviour by going on one of these things. Second to that, um, they stop you. These distractions stop you from confronting your kind of working conditions um, either by... Um, in a literal sense, I mean, I used to work as a chef in a pub. Um, we used to uh, go five-minute cigarette break uh, and uh, talk about how bad our working conditions were. Now uh, we take a five-minute break and try to get a high score on Temple Run. So it prevents, in a kind of physical sense, discussion about workplace dissatisfaction. And also I think it, it, it prevents uh, personal reflection, uh, even individual personal reflection on workplace dissatisfaction, because as soon as we come out of the workplace, we simply go to our phones and make sure our head is full rather than reflecting on how kind of miserable we are at work. Um, so, so my argument was that, in, in a sentence, unproductive enjoyment, what culture considers to be unproductive enjoyment, is the most productive thing from a capitalist point of view, because it sends us kind of back into, into work with a renewed desire to overcompensate and produce uh, having not interrogated or questioned the kind of conditions we're in. This kind of lack of, uh, as you described, the interrogation uh, of positions gives rise to um, the beginning of the third chapter that kind of stakes out the possibility of an alternative way of understanding and studying enjoyment, you know, almost a kind of enjoyment studies. Um, and I'm interested to hear a bit more about that before we talk um, about the kind of key theoretical engagements in the third chapter. So what what were you kind of getting at with this enjoyment yeah. studies um, idea? Yeah, great. I mean, so so just to, yeah, good. So um, if I was to apply that, the kind of model of uh, enjoyment, if there are always being three things, uh, you know, there's you, the thing you're enjoying, and the enjoyment itself, uh, where we normally always talk about two things. Uh, us and what we're enjoying we need to talk about the, the enjoyment itself 
is the third thing in the triangle. Um, so, for instance, with Candy Crush, it's the opposite of what I had described earlier with Deleuze or Leotard, where I can be totally unproductive myself. Uh, I can think, ah, oh, fuck my boss, I'm not doing any work, I'm having a go on cookie clicker, whatever. And the, the object, uh, Temple Run, Ski Free, uh, whatever I play, that can be totally unproductive too. But the enjoyment between the two could be productive by, as I just described, creating a kind of guilt which will, which will make us work harder for kind of capitalism. So this leads exactly into your latest question, the third, the third chapter, where I, I say, what would it look like if we took a better approach to enjoyment? You know, what would it look like if the university studied enjoyment in a much better way? And, and I think it would be exactly this. We, we would start to study enjoyment as uh, a third a third object in the relationship between us and things. Um, so a, 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 the University of Enjoyment Studies would be interested in, uh, yeah, making this a compulsory component of all discussions of things, you know, uh, uh, that we, we've got the text, we've got the reader, we've got the text, we've got the player, we've got the game, and we've also got this kind of invisible but equally powerful object called enjoyment operating between the two, um, which, you know, which is the really most interesting of the three to, to, to study and pick into. So I would like a, you know, I would like studies of enjoyment to pursue that. And how um, how would Lacan be uh, be kind of useful uh, and important to this? Hmm. Right, right. Well, I think that like um, uh, Lacan um, and psychoanalysis uh, offers a way of thinking about how uh, enjoyment can be. Um, totally conformative and totally uh, unsettling and bizarre and uh, destructive at the same time. Um, so, um, right, so, 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 yeah, I mean, so Lacan's not really interested so much in, uh, I think he's the theorist who, who, who does actually pull out this, this idea of enjoyment as a thing itself, an object of study. And of course, there's the famous Lacanian jouissance, um, which is a, a type of enjoyment which I talk about in the book. Um, but but um, really, I, I don't, I'm not entirely sure I'm completely with, with Lacan on, on the question of jouissance being this kind of, I think it's seen more as a, a kind of a slightly more radical thing than I may personally think. I think much jouissance is totally normal. Um, but at least what Lacan does do, which I think no other theorist does, is, is turn enjoyment into an object. Um, the actual enjoyment of a thing as, as an object, um, uh, which is, you know, which is, which is, I think, basically probably the most important thing we ought to do um, um, with enjoyment. Um, I suppose also it's in opposition with Deleuze, um, who, who I, obviously, as you point out, I was started off by opposing. But I've recently read this book, um, The Trouble with Pleasure. I don't know if you've seen, it just came out about a week ago at MIT Press. No, no, I'll have to add it to the list. Right, right, yeah. It, it, it's called The Trouble with Pleasure by Aaron Schuster. Uh, we, we just covered it in the Hong Kong Review of Books. I, I just did an interview with him, uh, and it, it made me read the book, which, you know, very carefully. Uh, and it's about Lacan and Deleuze. It's called The Trouble with Pleasure. And you can see the kind of parallels uh, but you know, I, I wish I'd had this book available to me before uh, before writing. It's just fantastic how he, he kind of shows that um, Deleuze and Lacan kind of belong on the same team, and that they were both kind of trying to show ultimately how there's something going on in pleasure, uh, which can kind of really be bizarre and throw off 
uh, everything we kind of think we understand. So I suppose that you know helps me to answer your question. I do think there's a kind of enjoyment which is not just capitalist, uh, which does actually make us throw ourselves into question. Uh, and I think that Lacan, you know, can help us to to to, to identify this kind of. Yeah, not so much, I wouldn't say, I don't want to say a radical enjoyment, but an enjoyment which makes us throw ourselves into question. I mean, I, and, I, therefore, and therefore can make us throw capitalism into question. Obviously, in, in a kind of, sorry, go ahead. Well, it's at that, you know, we're, we're kind of discussing these ideas on the level of Lacan, Deleuze, you know, their kind of the, theories. But that almost kind of misrepresents that third chapter because it's also about Gangnam Style and Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> So I wonder if you could, like, kind of talk me through those examples. Right, right, absolutely. And, and I think you're right, you know, I already get too bogged down in the Conan Deleuze like I always do. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to do is think about what would it, you know, what does this look like in the, in the actual lived experience of our world? Like, what's the point talking about, you know, what the Con said about pleasure if we can't see this functioning and again and again all around us? And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I would like, you know, Gangnam Style, for instance, is uh, something um, you know? Have you seen the video? That? I'm, I'm the, familiar with with the dance and the video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, I was very interested in the kind of so many angles around Gangnam Style. Like, firstly, the way everyone copied it, right? And it was like there was another. There's other things like that. For example, the Harlem Shake. That was yeah. a couple of years. Yeah. So it's like kind of gyrating bodily movements. Uh, Gangnam Style. You know, he captures it brilliantly. Sigh of Gangnam Style. Uh, and then everyone was kind of copying. The internet was just full of copies. And then that happened again with twerking, Miley Cyrus and all that. Right? Yeah. And then it happened again with the Harlem Shake. Um, and, and and I found these these three things, a kind of trio of enjoyments, Gangnam Style, Harlem Shake and twerking, kind of pursuing themselves through popular culture and through our... our and these are, these are not, these are not uh, productive enjoyments, right? Uh, these are not enjoyments of cultural capital attached. It's not like reading Deleuze. It's, but, but nonetheless, they're, they're not just simple, mindless, unproductive rubbish. These, these are like really strange forms of enjoyment. You know, if you, why it's so pleasurable not just to copy the Harlem Shake and gyrate madly like Gangnam Style and have a twerk, but to post it on the internet and then be seen posting it on the internet and then trawl through the internet looking for examples of it and then share it on Facebook. And then it's just, and all this enjoyment derived from these bizarre kind of bodily things um, uh, were, were kind of, well, I think producing an enjoyment which uh, is just too weird uh, and unsettling uh, not to be discussed, and I think that's where where I tried to finish the book with a kind of sense that uh, you know I'm not saying that we're all trapped within capitalism uh, and every kind of enjoyment is just yet another conformist reproduction of our kind of status status quo, um, because there are also these bloody weird moments of enjoyment which actually force us to throw ourselves and the, and the situation we're in into question. Um, so, you know, Gangnam Style, good example of that. Game of Thrones, yeah, yeah, similar, I guess. I tried to say something similar about Game of Thrones. I now feel differently about it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's... <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there, there have been a lot of issues with um, certainly the, the last series of Game of Thrones. So, yeah, yeah. And I, I'm now convinced that if, if there is a good philosophy of Game of Thrones. It's about the Anthropocene. You know, I read this recently, read this book by Larry Scranton, you know, that he was a former 
US Navy guy, and he's written a book called Learning to Die in the Anthropocene. Um, and Game of Thrones is obviously about global warming, right, and the kind of threat of the ice and all that. Um, and uh, I now think it's about, you know, uh, a parallel for modern society in which um, uh, you know the winter is coming and you're going to die. You've just got to battle for the correct way to, to die. I, I quite like the, uh, the Paul Mason uh, Marxist history of Game of Thrones. Um, yeah, quite, uh, quite, is that good? I haven't, I haven't heard of that. It, it was it, a couple of blog posts. It was quite fun, and, okay. and actually, it was one of those things where, much as the book ends, you know, a, a seemingly kind of flippant or unproductive or you know, kind of playful um, moment uh, that maybe gave rise to something kind of unexpected um, and alternative. And you know, you finish with like you know, little examples of detective fiction and serial box quizzes and things like that. Yeah, I think what the main one thing that motivates me, and uh, I now feel that it hasn't, you know, I need to do, a, I'd like to do another project on this, um, and I'm working on a, a book uh, with a co- colleague of mine, a friend of mine, Steve Nash, and we want to write a book on them, um, 1989, um, which is an album by Taylor Swift, which was covered in its entirety by Ryan Adams. Yep, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, we want to sort of write about the enjoyment of 1989 and how uh, the totally this is connects to what we've been talking about the the unproductive enjoyment of Taylor Swift and how she's considered to be a kind of totally mainstream uninteresting kind whereas Ryan Adams has cultural capital and there's a different obviously there's all sorts of gender and class politics going on and the difference between these two um, but what we, yeah, I mean, this is something I, I was really kind of setting out to, to to start with in this book. You know that I think that enjoyment is goes through this kind of system of judgment and, and cultural capital is attached to different kinds of enjoyments, and this is just wrong. Uh, and it can, but it also not only is it wrong, it, it gives rise to very interesting conversations about different kinds of enjoyment. I mean, everyone said uh, lots of reviews, for example, said that Ryan Adams's version was more subversive and radical than the original. And I just think that's so strange—the idea of like radical enjoyment, as as com- as compared to uh, conformist enjoyment. I think we live in a culture which does actually, even though we might listen to this conversation and say, "Oh, obviously, uh, that's tr- that's not true. That one thing is more radical or more better to enjoy than another." I think we live in a culture which unconsciously kind of makes these judgments and. and deems certain kinds of enjoyment to be radical and interesting and others to be kind of mindless and useless. And we've got to get out of that structure if we're going to uh, talk about enjoyment in any useful way whatsoever, I think. That's really interesting. Is this um, something you, you mentioned 1989 as a project, but is this something you're pursuing with, with other projects or um, have you got kind of um, other um, areas of, of research on the go? Well, um yeah, I, yeah, no, it, it is, I guess. I mean, like, like I said, this, this book was um, um, started because I was being so distracted by things like Candy Crush. I, I thought I should write about them. Uh, and then the book itself became a distraction from you know, my other work, um, which I considered to be always more legitimate, you know, my work on sort of laughter and philosophy, history of laughter and philosophy. Um, and this always felt like a sort of guilty pleasure. And now I sort of realised that this is exactly what I've been writing about. You know, the way that one kind of enjoyment, uh, one kind of work is deemed legitimate and productive in you know, my main academic field. And then this is deemed a sort of distractive, unproductive 
kind of enjoy it. And increasingly, you know, since my book tried to unsettle that divide, I'm, I'm trying to allow this to take over a little bit more in my actual studies of life. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would actually, I do think that maybe I'll uh, drop some of the more serious academic projects and allow the kind of uh, study of enjoyment to, because I think there's a, there's a lot here. Um, you know, so yeah, one way in which I'd like to talk about is music. You know, this 1989 book, the uh, the enjoyment of music and the question of radical taste and and conformative taste, which flares up in music very regularly. Um, but I'd also not, yeah, pursue that in other ways. Like uh, uh, try, and I, I would like. This, have you seen a, a book series um, run by Ian Bogost, um, who's fantastic? He's like the video game king. You know, he's like the go-to video game philosopher. No, uh, no, not, not it's, it's called it's called object lessons. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that? yeah it's a Bloomsbury thing. I think. Yeah, yeah, they they look very interesting, and I, I just sort of uh, I, I I put together a proposal at some point to uh, submit to them on on shoes. You know, I had the idea to write about a book on the, the concept of the shoe, but I, I now feel like maybe they, you know, something like that, a book like that on the the enjoyment as an object. Would, 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 could you accept in a book on enjoyment as part of object lessons, turning it into a kind of uh, object of study, like an actual thing, a material thing? The idea that enjoyment is a material thing that could be that could be good, couldn't it? Could be very very interesting. Uh, so yeah, I, I think so. Yes, my answer is yeah. I mean, hopefully, I can pursue some of this more, some of this stuff a little more in, in the future. Um, yeah, not really sure exactly what is happening next, but. Uh, yeah, if it, it, I think um, I'm always with anything, you know, I, I read this book back and I'm very disappointed with it. But one thing I'll say for it is that the conversations I've had out off the back of it have been, uh, you know, probably the most interesting and stimulating conversations I've ever had. Uh, so I think uh, I've accidentally hit upon something kind of interesting, um, which probably needs a lot of study. And yeah, I think I might dedicate myself to constructing the university to come of enjoyment studies. Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. David O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to Alfred Bow about his new book, Enjoying It, Candy Crush and Capitalism, which was published by Zero Books in 2015.